Welcome to Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan. Profiles is a weekly program that introduces members of our community as well as notable visiting artists, scholars, and entertainers to the WFIU audience. My guest today is Dr. Debbie Herbenick. She's a sexual health educator at the Kinsey Institute, associate director of the Center for Sexual Health Promotion at Indiana University, and the author of Because It Feels Good, A Woman's Guide to Sexual Pleasure and Satisfaction. She has authored or co-authored more than 50 peer-reviewed scientific publications. She's also a columnist for Men's Health Magazine and has appeared on The Today Show, among other television shows. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So I see on the internet that you have a new book in the works. So talk about what you're working on. I do. I have a new book that I'm working on with a colleague, um, and it's all about vaginas and vulvas, which is a topic that she and I are both very passionate about, uh, trying to get women to learn about their bodies and and have men learn about them too. Um, Yeah, that's our, our exciting project at the moment. What don't women know about their vulvas and vaginas, I suppose? What's what's the book going to get at? So the book will have um, the basics, anything from you know the parts of the vulva, which actually a lot of women and men don't know about. So what the parts are, where they're located, what they're called, what they do or don't do. There will be aspects of the book that are about sex and pleasure. There will be other aspects that are strictly about vulvovaginal health, and vulvovaginal is quite the mouthful of a word. (laughs) And um, there are other parts that are going to be much more about art and culture and uh, the ways that people think about women's genitals and also how certain cultures try to change them to fit some type of norm. Oh, interesting. When can we look for that in the Probably next summer or fall. I'm catching a theme in your books because your first book was Because It Feels Good, A Woman's Guide to Sexual Pleasure and Satisfaction. Why write these books uh, for a woman, for a female audience? To be perfectly honest, it's more of a practical issue than not. Um, I, I originally wanted to write Because It Feels Good for both genders. It actually became challenging to write a lot of language for people thinking that they could be any gender at all. So it turns out to be easier to narrow your focus. But that wasn't why I narrowed it. I actually narrowed it because um, my editor had advised me to to kind of pick someone that it would be not only easier to write but also, frankly, that women tend to be buyers of sex books and not men, which I found interesting. Although it does – it echoes my experience in other ways because I've taught human sexuality here at Indiana University for years. And Far more women take human sexuality than men and it's, it doesn't matter who teaches it or what time of day it is. Um, it tends to be a more – a class that more women sign up for. But that's also true of other – we're in the school of hyper. So that tends to be true of other health-related classes that more women sign up than men. We'll talk about your teaching experiences later. That's very interesting. Uh, take me through a little bit of the research and the writing process for these books. I know that's a really big question. But how do you write about sex? When I wrote Because It Feels Good, it was it was interesting. It was very focused on science, but the book is written in a much more fun, engaging way. But I wanted to make sure to represent a lot of what was going on and just translate it in a more uh, kind of regular, general audience kind of way rather than science speak, which can be, I think, really distancing for a lot of people. So in that process, luckily, I mean, I've been doing this kind of work for almost 12 years. It was probably about 10 years, 9 or 10 years at the time. So a lot of the stuff I just know in my head. And I don't have to go out and, and learn more about. But I wanted to make sure I was up to speed on everything, not just the stuff I study, but what colleagues of mine study. So in that, for that process, for months, I would just uh, find articles that I thought would be relevant to the book, save them as PDF files, 
And then um, over another several months, I read all of these articles, which was a couple hundred articles that were – and these were mostly articles in the past few years, although some were more historical. And then after that, I kind of grouped them into what I thought would be the chapters and what they were relevant to and kind of would, would go from there and see how they fit. So I think, you know, whereas the process for the Vagina and Vulva book is really different, even though there are aspects to it that are based on scientific research, there's a lot that's based on, you know, art and culture and what's going on in the world and uh, products like labial dyes and things like that. So um, some of it's scientific research now. We're also just talking to a lot of women. We're engaging in different kinds of art and activist projects ourselves and um, checking out stuff on the internet too. One more question about the Because It Feels Good book. I read something that said uh, – that described the book as you being a sex advisor who's as approachable as a girlfriend and as knowledgeable as a sex education professor. This tone of approachability, why was that important? Well, it's, it is who I am in one regard. So I didn't write that particular description. But I, I hear a lot of people generally say that about me. I think it's it's important to be approachable, to talk like regular people talk because – I always say that very few people will ever go and read my scientific research. I mean some articles might be read by 50 or 100 or 200 people, whereas if I can translate some of those same things into one or two paragraphs in Men's Health magazine or on my blog or in the Kinsey Confidential podcast, then they could reach thousands or even millions of people. And then that's how you teach people. That's how you educate them. That's how you help them to feel more normal about their lives is by putting it out there to the public and they can have their own conversations internally or with others. But the science, I think, is just a piece of it. We'll talk about all the different ways that you reach people through the podcast, through your columns and through these books a little bit later. You do so much. But let's get a piece of music started right away. This is by Jamie Lydell. Tell me why we're listening to Green Light. Oh, I, I love – most of – well, pretty much all of Jamie Lydell's music, but especially Greenlight, I think is one of those pieces of music that if you listen to the lyrics – and I'm very much a lyrics person – it's a song about giving yourself permission to do something, to be something, to feel something. And I think a lot of us could use that, especially in regards to sex. Music by Jamie Lydell. We heard Green Light. This is Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan, and my guest today is Dr. Debbie Herbenick. Let's talk now about the Kinsey Confidential podcast and then the work you do with Men's Health magazine. It's the same sort of concept where people, normal folks, write in with questions and then you respond with answers, either in a podcast or in the written form. So if you could generalize, the question-asking public, 
What are we struggling with? People mainly want to know if they're normal. That's the biggest thing. Some people do want specific information. Maybe they have a bet with somebody and they're just trying to settle it. But a lot of people want to know if they're normal, if they're okay, if their sex life is healthy, if a certain aspect of their body is healthy and okay. Um, And that could deal with anything from the size of their penis to the size of their labia to how many other people masturbate or engage in a certain kind of sex or dream about same or other sex people that might be they may feel is in conflict with their sexual orientation. So all kinds of different things that people just want to know. Do other people feel this way too? This idea of normal, where did we get this idea that there is a normal and we must be therefore abnormal? It's a good question. I don't know. I don't know how much of that is human nature versus how much of that is socialization. Um, certainly when it, you know, when it has to do with sex, I, I know I've heard some people even say that when we produce scientific research that these numbers get out in the media and they become a normal for somebody to compare themselves to and that could be a challenge of it and and that may happen. But I certainly hear a lot of positive comments from people in emails that it, it helped them feel more normal to read about um, sex science and its findings, whether it's our work or other people's. But I think we do that with everything else. We do that with, um, you know, how we look in terms of how we dress and our hair and things like that. So I I do think that in in kind of every area, we do just kind of all the social comparison. With your work with these regular people who write in questions, have you seen sort of an arc of change over the past couple of years that you've done this? How have things evolved in the recent past? I think some things have changed and many things have not about people's questions. Um, One thing I noticed from teaching college students – so this is a very specific group, right, of their questions. But you always get questions as a sex educator of college students that are along the lines of for women, how do I learn to have an orgasm? For men, how do I last longer? But probably about five or so years ago, I noticed for women, I started getting more questions about how do I learn to experience female ejaculation that I didn't used to get. So I think with more um, images of that happening on the internet, I get that not only in the classroom but also through you know the Kinsey Confidential podcast um, and other other outlets that I write for as well. Sometimes you think that we would all know something by now. For example, that the vast majority of people, men and women, masturbate, um, but we don't. And every time I teach, I'm you know amazed to hear how. One of the big impacts for a lot of women was to find out that other women masturbate and that this is a normal phenomenon and that's true for the different places I write for as well. So masturbation still plagues a lot of people who are either very young or very old or anywhere in between. Still this idea of normal popping up. Yeah. Normal and am I okay? Yeah. It's interesting these two platforms. We have Kinsey Confidential that's associated with this academic institution of the Kinsey Institute and then Men's Health Magazine, which is a fitness and sort of an entertainment magazine aimed at men. So do you sort of tailor your personality and how you answer questions to your different platforms? Yeah, I have to. I mean every every place has their style and in the case of Men's Health, they have an extremely successful style that they work with. And so anything that appears in their magazine goes along with that style. Um, online, it's different. There's a, You can have kind of a, a bit more of a wide range of voices for their blog. Uh, Kinsey Confidential certainly uh, has a more clinical audience. That's not to say that we can't have fun with it at times because we do. But it, it's certainly not as quirky as I might 
let myself go with. And I tend to be more of a quirky person, but in columns like Time at Chicago or on my own blog where I post pictures of what I like to call genitals in the wild, for example, where you can see you know, how fruit or trees or patterns on sidewalks end up looking like people's genitals. Another place that you're really active online is mysexprofessor.com. Mm-hmm. And you founded that in 2007 and it now includes any number of really active bloggers. One of the statements about the website is, we aim to help women and men learn how to have better sex and optimal sexual health and pleasure. The idea of improving sexual pleasure coming from a website with the word professor in the title, it's an interesting way to think about sexual pleasure sort of framed in this academic way. Talk about that. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way, but but I guess it is. Um, but I but even when I teach in a real classroom, you know, it is aimed at that. If you know all of these things about your body, about your health, that you can have better sex. And I don't think that that's you know anything that people should be afraid of aiming for. I think sometimes we position good sexual health being, you know at low risk for certain infections, for example, as being someone's goal. But in fact, most people's goal is to have, when it comes to sex, is to have a sex life that feels good to them and um, not just to avoid infection or pregnancy when they don't want to. But people, when they're actually having sex, are usually trying to experience some type of pleasure or orgasm or both. Um, So it's important to me that people end up feeling equipped to have the type of sex life that they want, whatever it is that they want. Let's talk about sex ed then for kids because this is something that comes up in the news regularly. And what you're talking about, uh, this idea of simply trying to avoid disease or even abstinence-only sex education, that seems to be what kids are getting the most of these days. And this idea of introducing sex is fun, sex can be pleasurable to kids seems pretty scary um, to a lot of people. So talk about the sex ed system that you see today and, and what's good and what's bad. I think the the issue with sex ed today is that there is no one sex ed system. And even within a given type of um, concept for sex ed, for example, absence only or absence only until marriage or absence-based or comprehensive sex ed, in any one of these, you could have a thousand different curricula And that's tough because it it does make it challenging to research what works, what doesn't, and what do we mean by working. Often what people mean is that it delays sexual activity or once people do have sex that they use the types of uh, safety things that public health people and medical people and parents hope that they're using like condoms or um, other forms of birth control or getting tested and so on. So it's, it's tough. I mean I think the research is pretty clear that Something that's more along the lines of comprehensive sex education or abstinence-based, which means that you show that abstinence is, uh, you know, really the, and it, it's true, right? It's the only way that you can completely avoid any infection or pregnancy at all, hundred <laughs> um, percent. But that it also acknowledges contraceptive and sexual orientation and the wide range of ways that people experience their sex lives, and that's really different than abstinence-only conceptualizations of sex ed, which tend to be that unless you're married, absence is the only acceptable way to live your sexual life. And the fact is that most people get married older than they did years ago. It's not in most people's plans to remain completely free of sex with a partner. And hello, we're still in a country where not everyone can get married anyway. So to say that 
you know, you have to stay, you have to abstain until you're married. What does that mean for people who either don't want to get married or who can't legally get married? Are they supposed to, you know, abstain from sex forever? It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to a lot of people or to me. If you could sort of imagine where we're going with sexual education for our kids, maybe in the next five or ten years, if you could paint a perfect world, what would it be? It would it would be more along the lines of what you see with the CICAS guidelines. So CICAS is the Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States. Okay. Um, their website is CICAS.org. Um, but they, for years, have had these guidelines. And what I like about them, because I, I've, I've spent a lot of years working with children, not on sex-related stuff, although I've done kind of how babies are made talks for kids too. But most of my work with kids is not at all related to that. But I can appreciate the development of childhood and adolescence. And you know, I think the important thing with children is that you you focus on what's an age-appropriate message for them. And I don't know anyone, for example, that thinks you need to explain sex in all of its details to a five- or an eight-year-old in most cases, although there are some eight-year-olds who have had, um, you know, some pretty abusive experiences that have happened to them too. Um, but letting small children know why their mom's tummy is growing really big and explaining how babies are made and not making things up like the stork. Um, so giving them age-appropriate information about their bodies, about their genitals, real names for their body parts, things like vulva and penis. And I'm a fan of saying vulva and penis rather than vagina and penis because vagina is the inside part. So I don't even know why children are taught that they have a vagina when they are pointing to the outside parts. And that as they age, that their parents would be a part of providing information and education to them because parents do usually know their children better than other people if they're playing an active role in their kids' lives. Um, but also that there would be sex education in schools. I was at a talk years ago by former Surgeon General David Satcher, and he was talking about how you know education in schools is the great equalizer. And you could have kids who come from homes where their parents are not well-educated or kids who come from homes that are very poor or that have a lot of money or, you know, that parents may have very liberal or very conservative values or somewhere in the between, whatever it is. But school is what helps them all have the same playing field of knowledge. And that was a really powerful thing for me to hear. And he was talking about sex education in this regard and that whatever your background was, that you could still have the same opportunity at school to learn how to protect your body, just as you would about learning how to wash your hands, which we teach kids in kindergarten, and brush your teeth and cover your mouth when you cough. I mean, do you think we're going to get there? I do. I do think we're going to get there. A lot of the world is there. We're not there. Um, we tend to be a more conservative society, but we also have much, much higher rates of infection and unintended teen pregnancy than the other countries that teach more about sex education. And in some countries where they have a more comprehensive sex, edu sex education, by the time teenagers are in high school, they're also learning about the pleasurable aspects of sex, which makes sense because more teenagers, 14, 15, 16, and 17-year-olds and 18-year-olds, um, become sexually active in different ways. It doesn't mean that they all do. It's much more common around 17, 18, 19, 20. But you still have some younger ones and they, they deserve to learn how their bodies work. We'll talk more about that and actually your work with the National Survey of Sexual Health and Behavior. That survey included 14 through 17-year-olds, so we'll get to that in a little bit. Time to hear another piece of music, though. Let's go to now music of Wilco. How fun is this song? I love this song. This is one of their newer, newer songs. It's called You and I. And I don't 
It's it's not a very literal song, which I like. I think it takes some imagination to wonder what they're really singing about. But to me, you know, the sense of like being in love or being in lust or something, but not being entirely sure you know this person down to their core. be strangers However close we get sometimes It's like we never met But you and I I think we can take it All the good with the bad Make something that no one else has That was music of Wilco, You and I. You're listening to Profiles with Dr. Debbie Herbenick, sexual health researcher and educator, and author of the book, Because It Feels Good. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. So before we get into your research and your teaching, we have to let our listeners know that you're a big foodie, that you love to cook and you love to experience new restaurants, and uh, this is a big part of your life. How did you get so involved in food? I've always loved food, like, like I think a lot of people do, but a lot of my early memories are about food because my mom and my grandmothers were all big um, cookers. You know, some were known for their baking, others for their main dishes, but we just cooked a lot at home. And in the summers, we would go to Maine and we're much more – we were more involved in a different type of food experience, which was very farm-based. And so we would um, stay in a small town in a house that had been in my family for a really long time. And um, my grandfather and I would wake up early every morning and he would take me around to different farms where he knew the farmers and we would get all kinds of different things. And then my grandmother would make all kinds of dishes with the green beans that we got and the corn and the tomatoes and the strawberries and the blueberries and raspberries. And we had raspberry and blueberry bushes there. So I think there's a mix of enjoying a lot of the really interesting and varied cuisine of where I grew up, which is Miami, Florida, and a lot of different kinds of foods because I had friends from all kinds of different countries and and parts of the world. Um, But also this very simple way of eating and enjoying food that I experienced in the summers in Maine. Um, And as I've grown up and traveled more, I mean, one of my favorite things to do in a new place is to find out what the great restaurants are and to check out all their menus and compare. And even if I only have one night, I will find that one place to eat and usually go back there again and again every time I return to that city. That's cool that you have the farm experience and then you have uh, the diversity of Florida cuisine all in your background. Do you have any desire, I don't know, to go back to the farm? Oh, I have a huge desire. And it's one of the things I love about living here in Bloomington because there are all kinds of things that we grow. I mean, not a lot. We grow herbs and tomatoes and this year butternut squash and things like that. But um, 
I love the idea of growing what you eat and of your neighbors growing what they eat and you being able to share things with each other or get things at the local market. So sometimes I do have fantasies of you know, living somewhere like that. But even in even in Miami, which people think of as more urban, but we lived in the suburbs. And in our backyard, we had a star fruit tree, which is carambola, and a grapefruit tree and an orange tree. And we had a lemon tree and a lime tree and all these things. Food and sex are related as well. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is not too far of a stretch from what you do for your job. The idea of food as serving as an aphrodisiac, do you buy into that? Yes and no. If you think anything is an aphrodisiac, then it probably will be. The mind is really powerful. We haven't seen a lot of evidence about foods actually having major powers, but there is some. I mean, there are some plants and herbs and foods that are being tapped into their, for their potential and, and mind, but we really need to learn a lot more about that. But some foods also resemble genitals, and those are usually the ones that get picked up and described as aphrodisiacs historically, things like oysters and avocados and papayas and and food along those lines. Uh, Sexual enhancement, we hear about herbal supplements for sexual enhancement, sort of food-ish if they're herbal, and and you're shaking your head at me. (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, there's – if you don't call something a drug and you're just saying it's a supplement, you can just make all these claims and – People spend a lot of money on herbal supplements to enhance their penis size or their sexual function in some way. And unfortunately, these just don't have scientific evidence behind them. That doesn't mean that they don't work. I mean, maybe someone just needs to study them. But my guess is that the vast majority, if not all of them, frankly, don't work. Um, That said, we certainly know that people can um, better situate themselves for a better sexual life and better sexual function if they eat well, if they exercise, if they get a lot of sleep at night. So all of these things that just kind of keep you healthy and energetic um, and that aid your blood flow, that don't clog your arteries. A lot of what sexual function is like erections for men and lubrication for women and arousal and those warm, tingly feelings, a lot of that is blood flow. So if you clog your arteries with stuff or you smoke a lot of cigarettes, you are really setting yourself up for more problems with sexual function later on. Let's go now to talking about your teaching. Mm -hmm. So you teach human sexuality at Indiana University. That's a 200-level course, so primarily undergrads in this class? It is undergrads, yeah. The um, human sexuality class is an elective for most students. And so it's great because they want to be there, which is always a plus when you're teaching. And it's it's absolutely my favorite class to teach. I've I've taught it maybe fourteen or fifteen times, anywhere from twelve or fifteen students in the summer to eighty or hundred or hundred and sixty during the year, and I love it. Wow! You said earlier that you have by far more women taking this class than men. Is that a reflection of women simply being more interested in this subject, or perhaps men being a little afraid of this subject? I mean, could you? generalize? I really don't know. We talk about it and it's it's not entirely clear to me. I think if you just think about it as a sex class, then it might be that some men, you know, think that they already know about this topic. And certainly some will say that they thought, you know, what could I learn from this class? I know so much about it already. I've sought out information. I read magazines and so on. It might be that men tend to major in other things that really clog up their schedules and that they just kind of don't take a lot of these kinds of electives. Uh, It could be more of a school of health type of thing in the sense that many health classes, stress management, personal health, women's health, are very um, female dominant. But there are some health classes like men's health, which is mostly men. So the men are out there. They're just not signing up in the same numbers for 
a human sexuality class no matter who teaches it or what semester. That's interesting. Well, some of your students in these classes might at some point realize, hey, I want to study sex for the rest of my life and make it my job. So how did you get to that point? What was the aha moment for you when you realized, I want to be a sex educator and a sex researcher? For me, the aha moment was when I was um, working on my grad school applications for um, child psych programs, which was the original plan. I, I, I studied child psych types of things in undergrad, came to IU to work at the Kinsey Institute right after, and because they were doing a study on childhood and adolescent sexual development. So it interested me because of the development aspect, not because of the sex at all. Um, but when I got to Kinsey, I found out how little we knew. And when I was applying to go back to grad school and going down this track I always thought I would do with children, I realized that as passionate as I was about um, working with children on all these non-sex-related things, like children with special needs, children um, you know, who had different learning problems and so on, as passionate as I was about that, I wasn't going to be able to leave my questions and, curio- and curiosities about sex behind. So if I was going to spend my time doing that anyway, I may as well pursue that as an education and a career. So I did that. And here you are. And here I am. Although I think, you know, either life would have been interesting. Let's talk a little bit about your research then, Mm because this is a really big part of what you do as well. I'm wondering what you're working on right now. What's in the works? Right now, I'm waiting to get approval for a study about women who experience sexual pleasure and or orgasm while they're engaging in physical exercise. So like sit-ups and weightlifting and things like that. How did you get interested in that topic? How interesting. Because you hear about it sometimes. And I hear about it from people who write into columns. I hear about it um, from students. It's not large numbers of women that talk about it, but they're out there and they're there in large enough numbers that I think there's something very interesting about it. And there's pretty much no research on it. So I think it's, it's interesting in and of itself And for some women, it may change how they exercise. I've heard from some women who kind of, you know, as a columnist, don't want me to reveal which particular exercise machine it is at the gym they use because they don't want to wait in a line for that (laughs) machine. And they've, you know, said these things and they kind of want to keep that secret to themselves. But I've heard from other people who are really – it makes them very self-conscious because they worry that they're making facial expressions or sounds while this happens. So they avoid that part of exercise. So that's interesting to me. But I also think if we can understand more about it, then we would understand more about how women's orgasm works to begin with, just in general. So if you can understand like these special cases, you might understand more about the process of orgasm, which we actually don't know a whole lot about. What I'm hearing from you uh, when we meet on a fairly regular basis to work on Kinsey Confidential together is we just don't know a whole lot about the way women's bodies work. Orgasm, ejaculation, all of that. Is it a fault of the scientists who just haven't done the research or is it something about women's bodies that's just a little bit confusing? I think it's a lot of things and one is that the field of sexual science is young. And, you know, Alfred Kinsey did his work in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s until his death. And that wasn't really all that long ago. And so you can only do, you know, the way science is really slow. So you do one thing at a time. And science is a lot faster than it used to be where people would work on something. And, I mean, you know, it could take five or ten years before it came out. And you had to do 
all your statistics by hand and things like that. And we don't do that anymore, but we still move slowly. So I think part of it is that we just move at a snail's pace and it takes time to know things. And we're a small group of people. Um, and you can only do so much so much at once. There are a dozen studies that I would love to do that I haven't done yet. This is one of the ones that I've shelved for several years because I've had other things to do. So yeah, people don't always ask the question sometimes because they haven't thought of them, but sometimes because they haven't had the time or the resources or they're not a school that is supportive of that kind of research too. And we also have, as you said, very women have very complex bodies, but men do too. We don't understand a lot about male ejaculation. So, you know, it's actually unclear, for example, what is that final trigger that says, okay, enough, time to ejaculate. There have been a few studies that have tried to understand that with men, but we don't. And that's a, you know, a really common everyday kind of thing for some people. Hmm. One of the most recent studies you did was about condom use. Mm -hmm. So I was picking through information about this study and I just found a couple facts and I'd love you to add to this. One in four acts of vaginal intercourse are condom protected in the U.S. Condom use is higher among black and Hispanic Americans than among white Americans and those from other racial groups. Just a couple facts from that study. What else did you find out about condom use? Well, there are a few interesting things. One was the very high rate of condom use among teenagers, which was so encouraging to see that condom use has become this very normative thing, that they know when they start having sex, they should be using condoms, which is great. They weren't all, but many of them were, um, whether it was a, whether sex was with a relationship partner or a casual partner. But more often, they use condoms with casual partners, just like adults. However, condom use was really low among among adults 40 and over. And it was even you know lower than the teenage years in college-age adults, even sometimes when, the, when sex was with a casual partner. So we need to do better than we have. I think one of the other surprising condom-related facts was um, – just this notion that we found that ratings of pleasure and arousal and orgasm were actually really similar um, whether or not sex had had used a condom or not, whether you'd use a condom for sex. And so that's interesting because people often will say, oh, well, I don't want to use a condom because it makes sex worse. But in fact, it doesn't seem to. So part of that might be because condoms have changed and there are a lot better ones than there used to be, a lot more interesting designs. Part of it might also have to be that people are learning to kind of manipulate condoms almost in a way that makes sex better. So when I mentioned these data to my college students in human sexuality class, they were saying, well, of course it makes sex better. And they were saying, you know, if you are not on birth control or even if you are, then using a condom as a woman makes you feel more relaxed and comfortable because you're not going to get pregnant um, if you're using it correctly. And, you know, they would also say, oh, yeah, and condoms can help, you know, men last longer during sex. So particularly for young men who premature ejaculation is a concern for, that was interesting. Or, or it can help them have sex long enough where they don't feel like the, the guy has to pull out very quickly. Um, so that was, a, you know, an interesting finding. And aside from the condom stuff, it was – the study was all about sex in general. And one of the mo more surprising findings was that we found – about one in three women, it was about 30 percent of women, had pain during sex, some level of pain. Not necessarily the whole time, not necessarily severe, but some difficulty with pain. One in three? Yeah. And I think that you know when we look at that, because it's higher than I expected, we know that about 10 percent of women have vulvodynia, so chronic pain. Um, could be during sex, could be during daily activities. But I think this question captured all the little types of pain that women may experience. Um, 
pain when their partner's penis or sex toy or fingers hits up against their cervix, um, pain from an uncomfortable position. You know, I think just if, if a woman's being penetrated, not all women are penetrated during sex, but many are. The, the majority are with a partner. And the experience of physically having your body penetrated, I think, just is a very different experience than it is to be a penetrator or to have external stimulation only. So I think that's something we need to learn more about. I think it's something that I hope people talk more openly about with their partners regardless of their gender um, because there were there were some men but not many, about 5 percent who had pain. And everything that we're talking about was part of the National Survey of Sexual Health and Behavior. Correct. An interesting thing about this survey, it surveyed respondents with an age range of 80 years. Yeah. So like from 14 to 17-year-olds all the way up to 80 94. plus. Yeah. 94 was your mm-hmm. oldest respondent. That's amazing. So this is uh, the obviously the widest age group of people ever surveyed, but also the most comprehensive. Yeah, I think comprehensive. It's a tricky word to say that. I think, you know, comprehensive in terms of age range specifically. Comprehensive in terms of we have some details on certain sexual behaviors or sexual behaviors by gender, which weren't well asked before. Sometimes people just ask about oral sex, not oral sex with a man versus oral sex with a woman. But, you know, there are certainly other other studies. The Laman study that from 1992 was interview-based and they asked about a lot of sexual problems and abuse and it was much more comprehensive in that way. And Kinsey, who spent hours talking to people um, and many thousands of people, it wasn't nationally representative was the issue. And people didn't live as long then. So there weren't there weren't as many older people, even above 50, in those surveys. But every survey has its, has its strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and I think that the best thing I think that we did with the 14 to 17-year-old data is that we also presented them separately year by year and by gender. And this is important because sometimes data comes out from the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, and the media picks it up and reports on it as if as if all teenagers are the same. They'll say X percent of teenagers are having oral sex. but if, and, and they're usually talking about 15 to 19-year-olds. But you know, a 15-year-old is really different sexually than a 19-year-old. And I think many people understand that a lot of 19-year-olds are having sex. But it's not the case that the majority of 15-year-olds are. They're just not. And when we lump them together – then we kind of misrepresent what adolescence is. But when we look at them year by year, you can see that there's no clear point when sex starts. It kind of starts at different points for different people and in different ways. And, you know, masturbation is actually kind of the most common behavior that you see across the lifespan of of anything. But it, it looks at them, I think, with a little bit more respect for sexual human beings that are just kind of emerging and, you know, slowly starting to explore. Have you gotten any feedback from people saying, how dare you talk to our children about their sex lives? You know, we haven't, but we were also very respectful of families here. And we first asked parents if it was okay to ask their if it was okay to ask their teenagers these questions. We gave parents the opportunity to review the questionnaire first. And actually the majority of parents consented to let us ask their teenagers these questions and 99% of the teenagers agreed to take the survey. So what what I found from other work that I've done with teenagers, interview-based studies with teenagers, again with parental permission, is that teenagers usually like to talk to researchers about their sex lives because they don't always feel like they have a lot of other people they can talk to. Um, whether or not they're having sex, they, they're not always – 
certain that their friends will judge them or not or how their parents will or that there are certain things they just don't feel comfortable or don't want to tell their parents or their friends. So sometimes they, um, I think, find it helpful just to have someone to share these things with. Let's go now to some sex-related issues in the news. So recently, on the campus of Yale, a fraternity got in big, big trouble because they had their pledges marching around campus. Presumably, this is some sort of hazing activity saying, no means yes, yes means anal. Obviously, they've received a lot of backlash for this. The idea that we're using sexual violence against women as a way to induct men into a fraternity. I mean, it's 2010. Are we still there? We are still there in a sense um, that people joke a lot about sexual violence against women. But I also think you know, that this is a really complicated issue and I've read quite a lot of reports about this case at Yale. And I think, though, that just as we don't talk seriously about violence against women in ways that are often helpful, we also don't, I think, talk enough about the way that young men come to become men and what it means, what masculinity means and the challenges that are really there for guys. You know, we we often have campus education efforts about preventing rape and sexual assault among women. We still kind of ignore that for men. And I've had male students and I've heard from guys at this campus and at plenty of other campuses who do experience, you know, their own type of, you could call it sexual assault or sexual discomfort or pressure from their fraternity brothers because most guys are actually great. And the vast majority of men we know from research do not rape other women or men. In fact, most rape and assault is a very small number of men that do this to multiple people. So there is something that needs to be talked about with sexual violence against women. But there's also something that needs to be talked about with how do we raise boys to be men and how do we support them in being the good humans that they want to be and that they have the capacity to be and to be assertive about things that um, that conflict with their values, you know, to not engage in something like that, um, to not go around yelling these things um, and to know how to make amends when they mess up. And if you want to read more about that controversy, go to the Kinsey Confidential website to read an article from one of the bloggers about that. That's kinseyconfidential.org. Going back to adolescence, something that's big in the news these days, according uh, having to do with adolescence, is the idea of bullying and suicides of young people because they were taunted for being gay or being perceived as gay. So now I don't really have a question here, just more of a, a comment that I'd like you to riff on. It seems as though gay is the most potent insult a kid can use against another kid. It's vicious to say and it's really painful to be called, this idea that gay is the ultimate insult for adolescence. It is for many um, boys in particular, but for some girls too. For girls, they also get the label of slut. And there have been some teen suicides that were some blips on the radar, but not a lot of attention of young girls who had been bullied because of their sexual behavior or their perceived sexual behavior. 
Um, so whether we're dealing with sexuality issues or gender issues, I think these are two two things that other teenagers and children um, sometimes use to target each other in schools and to make each other's lives really uncomfortable and painful and to make people seem very small. Um, I think Dan Savage's It Gets Better project has been a wonderful move forward in helping a lot of gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender teenagers and young adults to find other people who maybe they can identify with, um, particularly if they've experienced some struggles too and now have found that life got a lot better once they got away from that situation. It's not the answer to everything and everyone involved with It Gets Better knows that, but they they know that it's very powerful too to hear these messages for people, especially if these young kids live in a town where there's nobody who is out as being gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender, but you can go to the internet and you can now see this. So that's meaningful. But I would still love to find, you know, some way to help these other teenagers who are just being made fun of for some some way that people just target them for whether it's about sex or gender or their haircut or whatever else that makes people feel horrible. And I do think that schools are going to have to step up and figure out how to deal with this. You know, if somebody is actually being hurt, you know, call the police. Schools need to learn that this is not okay. Teachers, principals have to, I think, step up and model good behavior but also support the parents and the teenagers and the children in their schools. It's because, you know, kids can do the best they can but they can't always solve these problems. And frankly, I think if for some parents – I would love to see parents get active and make their towns better places. But I think we all know that's not going to happen in every town overnight too. And frankly, I also think to some extent if a parent has the resources to get up and move, if that's what it takes, then get up and move if you have the ability to. If you think that there is another – that your town is not going to be a place for your child. And I've had students who are from incredibly small towns – um, that are wonderful and some from, who are from incredibly small towns where they've had a really tough time, then if you can find a better place for your child and your family to live, that's an option for some. It seems like better sex ed in the schools could potentially help with this problem too because if slut is what you're going to call girls that you want to make fun of and gay is what you want to call boys that you want to make fun of, surely there would be a way to teach these adolescents, that those aren't okay or that those aren't necessarily bad things, either of those. Yeah, I do think, you know, part of part of comprehensive sex education that I like, part of those values from CECAS that we talked about earlier, those guidelines, are about teaching young children how to communicate with respect and with comfort to kids of their same gender and other genders. And these are really basic kindness skills and communication skills. And I think that's missing. Some schools, um, I was lucky to go to a middle school that um, required us all to take a class in personal ethics. And we learned about kindness and compassion and honesty and integrity and character and all of those kinds of things. And it was very conversational. And we learned a lot about communicating with each other. And I know not all schools have those, but I would like to think that in addition to sex ed, that there's a general whether it's a class or a modeling of being a good citizen, right, having good character. And then if you know – if you have the information about sexual orientation, you have the information about sexual behavior, 
um, and the wide diversity in the world of each, then hopefully even if you do notice that somebody is different from you in some way, that you don't necessarily identify that as something that you either make fun of them about or that you use your power in school to put them down and that you just learn how to be decent people. That is the goal of school in many ways, isn't it? Should be. Well, one more question, then we're going to get you out of here. Look ahead 10 years. Where do you see your life and your career? I don't plan 10 years in advance. Really? (laughs) I don't. I could be doing what I'm doing now. I could be teaching yoga. I could be living on a farm. I really don't know. But maybe I should start planning in advance because I keep thinking I'll do something for six (laughs) months or a year and then apparently I spend 12 years doing it. No, it's very exciting. So your life is constantly changing and evolving. I'm just open to change. I mean I I don't know what it will be. Well, that's a perfect place to end it. We'll go out on one more piece of music. This is by Roy Orbison. Why do you like this? I love the song because it reminds me of my dad. And he and I, our whole family loves music, but um, he played the song for us years ago in a car driving on a family vacation in Ireland. And I just remember him telling the story about Roy Orbison and his life. And then he played the song and it always stuck with me. You've been listening to Profiles with Dr. Debbie Herbenick, sexual health researcher and educator and author of the book, Because It Feels Good. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. For Profiles, I'm Annie Corrigan. Every time I look The program you just heard was recorded in October of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.